Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, tonight we're going to talk about the ascension of Christ. Um, without, without raising your hands, how many have ever thought about, at length, the ascension of of Jesus. We celebrate his birth, we celebrate death, burial, resurrection, um, the big stuff we talk about, baptism, transfiguration, we know those stories, but when it comes to the ascension, the ascension sort of gets um, the grand finale treatment as if that's just the end of the story and that's how it happens, he ascends to heaven and it's glorious and beautiful, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot, doesn't matter all that much, and it's just sort of the cap to the story, but uh, I hope we see tonight that the ascension is just as central to the work of Christ as his resurrection. It's just as central to the gospel story as the crucifixion and the incarnation. The ascension of Christ is part of that gospel narrative, and it happens for a reason. Uh, Jesus, uh, you know, in his ascension was not just thinking about the best way he could go out of this thing. <laughs> and before his disciples, let's uh, float up into the heavens. That's a grand finale, right? I mean, it was, and it's wonderful and beautiful and glorious, but that wasn't the purpose of the ascension. Neither was it the purpose that we assume that heaven is up in the clouds somewhere. And, of course, that's where Jesus went when he went up. No, there was a visual theological picture in the ascension of his ascension, of his exaltation, all that goes into this beautiful picture of the ascension of Christ. More importantly, and we'll close with this tonight um, in a few moments, um, is the ongoing work of Christ that the ascension points us to. That the, the, the work of the cross is finished, the atonement is done, the resurrection puts the cap on that, the receipt is given, the payment has been accepted, but the ascension carries on the work of what Christ has done for us. And we'll look at that later tonight. Turn in your Bibles and let's read from Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, just four verses, verses 50 through 53. Luke gives a really short version of the ascension in his gospel, but he picks up the rest in Acts 1, and we'll turn there in a minute. Let's look at his, his shortened version of the ascension. Luke 24, beginning in verse 50. Then he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The center of that is Jesus blessing his disciples with his outstretched hands as he is carried up into heaven. And I want us to consider, first of all, tonight, that this is a good thing. Jesus' departure, Jesus' leaving is a good thing. And, of course, we look at that and we think, yeah, this is a good thing, the ascension. He's going to heaven to intercede and all the stuff that we understand. But put yourself in the place of those disciples and how much they may or may not have understood about what was going on. And try to put yourself there and, and, and understand what's happening. And Jesus leaving us 
is a good thing. And that might have been a little perplexing and confusing to, to them. They worship, and it says they go to the temple and they're rejoicing, but they don't quite understand what all this means. Let's go over to Acts chapter 1. So we continue Luke's narrative. Luke writes Acts as well. And so Acts picks up where Luke left off. And he gives a little more time to the ascension in Luke, uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Let's begin Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times, the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the disciples' number one question here at this scene is not um, really a theological one. It is not, oh, now they get it. The crucifixion has happened. They've witnessed the resurrected Lord, and now they understand, right? No, they still don't understand because their question uh, is off base. Oh, Lord, now that you've died, now that you've risen, we've gotten that all the way, now will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And you can imagine their confusion and disillusionment as Jesus begins to depart I mean, they think now it's the time. We've been waiting. We had to go through the whole cross and the resurrection thing, but now he's conquered death. He's conquered all, and now we're going to ride into Jerusalem and take Jerusalem back and restore the kingdom to Israel. That's the mission, right? No, Jesus says there is a bigger mission. There's a bigger mission. And he says, you will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. No, disciples, actually it is not time right now to restore the kingdom to Israel. In fact, my mission now is not focused on Israel and Jerusalem and that at all. Now we're going to go. We're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea, the region. Then we're going to go to that other region, Samaria, that you don't want to go to. And then from there, we're going to go to the end of the earth. This is bigger, what we've been looking at on Sunday morning. Sure, it started with the Jews. It started with Israel. It started there in Jerusalem, but it doesn't end there. The mission is bigger than that. And the disciples hearing this um, still don't quite understand all that's going on. That's evident from the fact that uh, on the day of Pentecost, some 10 days later, they are still in the upper room, uh, hunkered down and praying trying to figure out what to do now. And that might have been their question. Don't we need Jesus to do this? He's given us this mission. We know he's promised us his spirit. We don't know what that means yet. But he wants us to do this mission for him, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, as Mark said, or as Matthew reports, to go into all nations and make disciples, teaching them to obey and baptizing. But don't we need Jesus here to do this? How is this departure of his... How, how, who, who says, hey, I've got this big job for you to do, and y'all go do it, and I'm going to leave. And I kind of joke with Matt and Zane sometimes when we have something to move or something to bring into the office, someone comes. I end up helping them, I promise. Someone's got to bring some heavy piece of something in, and I say, hey, I'll make y'all a deal. Y'all go do that, and uh, I'll stay here. That, that's kind of how I picture Jesus in this moment. Y'all go do this huge mission to the end of the earth, and I'm going to go to heaven, okay? 
And they would have been staring there as they do. Don't they stare there in heaven? And the angels say, why are you just standing there gazing into heaven? He will come back in the same way he left, but go do what he told you to do. That's an understandable question, isn't it? This is a huge mission. It's a huge task. Don't we need Jesus here to do this? Well, let's see how Jesus uh, sort of responds to their question before they even know there is a question. Turn in uh, your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John 16. John 16. This is uh, Jesus' discourse with his disciples in the upper room before he's about to go to the cross. Let's see, read what Jesus says here in John 16, uh, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, later in the Great Commission, you know this verse, Jesus promises to always be with us. Now, that's the power behind the Great Commission. Go make disciples. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the author of Hebrews reports. So how does Jesus say here in John 16, as he's about to go to the cross, and then the resurrection, and then he knows the ascension is coming, how does he tell his disciples, it's good that I'm leaving? Yes, I'm going to be with you always, and it's my power, and it's my presence, and my strength that's going to fuel this whole mission you're going to go on, but it's good that I'm leaving. That doesn't seem to make sense, and it doesn't make sense to them either. Now Jesus, after promising to be with us, is going to leave. But what does he say there in verse 7? If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus will be present. He will be present by his spirit. Now, that is not Jesus will be present as the spirit. Remember, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son and the Father. And the, we don't confuse those persons. It's not that Jesus goes and then comes back as the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus ascends, and he's at the right hand of the Father. Acts 2 tells us, Peter says, that Jesus goes to the Father, asks the Father, and they together then send the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so this isn't Jesus coming back as the Spirit. It's Jesus coming back by the Spirit in filling and indwelling our hearts by his presence, by his spirit. Okay, that's an important note. I heard a preacher say one time, um, and it's, so it's not original to me, but I just, I love this quote. Uh, Jesus was telling his disciples as much as they wanted him there and as much as they thought they needed him there for the mission, and they do, and he will be there. His presence will be there by his spirit. Uh, the preacher said that the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. And that's exactly what Jesus says there in John 16, 7, isn't it? I have to go away. And it's good to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. And if the helper does not come, Acts 1, 8, you will not have the power that you need to do the mission that I'm sending you on. It's great that I'm here, Jesus says. Work while there is light, for the night is coming. But I will send my Holy Spirit to be your comforter, your power, and your helper, 
and he will empower you to do this mission in mind. The spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Now, it doesn't sound like that to our ears, and one day we long to see Jesus. We want to be with him. Yes, but for now, in this mission of the church, we need the indwelling power and person of the Holy Spirit more than we need the physical Jesus uh, still walking around on the earth, and that's exactly what he tells his disciples. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. All right? Let's look in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 as we consider the ongoing work of the ascension. Again, it's, it's more than just the grand finale of the Gospels. As beautiful and glorious as it must have been, as Jesus ascended to heaven, there's more to it than just the awe and the wonder of him ascending into the sky. There's an ongoing work that this points us to. Now look at Hebrews chapter 4. Let's read verses 14 through 16, and then we'll look at this ongoing work a little bit. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus, in his ascension, is showing that the work that he came to do, although finished on the cross and the resurrection, has ongoing implications. And as he ascends, he's not just going up into the clouds to float around forever. He's going to the right hand of the Father to do something continually for us. And one of those is to be our great high priest. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, but today we want to look at this work of the priest as Jesus ascends to heaven and what, what all that means for us. We see this language in Hebrews 4 about the priest, and he picks it up in Hebrews 7. We'll look at that too. And it recalls, on purpose, the Old Testament priesthood. The language is reminding us of the Old Testament priesthood. Look at the language. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens... We have a priest who is, uh, we don't have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so through him, we can, verse 16, approach the throne of grace to find help in the time of need. So it's pointing us back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant priesthood, but it's not just pointing us there. Go on to uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and look at verse 11. Still talking about this whole idea of the priesthood. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? And then look at verse uh, 23. Hebrews seven twenty-three. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death, by death, from continuing in office. So while this language of Jesus' priesthood points us back to the Old Testament, we have to remember something about the Old Testament priesthood, the author of Hebrews says. The Old Covenant priesthood, as holy and wonderful and righteous as it was, ordained by God, it was limited Verse 23 says it was limited namely by two things. 
the mortality of the priests in that they die and their own sinfulness. It was holy, ordained by God, instituted for the people. It was righteous. It was what they were supposed to do, but it was not the end in itself. And it proves to be so because the priests die and the priests are sinners just like the rest of everyone else. But that is not the case with Jesus. That is not the case with Jesus. I think I meant Hebrews 7.24, not 4.24. So look at Hebrews 7.24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So while the Old Covenant, Old Testament priesthood was good and righteous, instituted by God, holy, it was limited by their sin and it was limited by their mortality. But the author of Hebrews goes on to say, not so with Jesus. He holds his priesthood forever because he is forever. His priesthood is forever because he is forever. He goes on to say in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, because he's forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There's the ascension, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is a different high priest. This is a different priesthood. This isn't that old one that was tainted by sin and death. As wonderful as it was, it was temporary and it pointed to this. This priest who will reign forever and who will minister forever, who never dies, who offered himself once for all. And since he is forever and he lasts forever and his priesthood is forever, he offers a complete salvation. The author says there in verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Now look at verse 25 and see why he's able to save to the uttermost. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. There is the work of Jesus at the right hand of the Father right now. There is the reason why we can trust that our salvation is to the uttermost. That our salvation is complete. Because Jesus who died never dies again. Jesus who rose is exalted forever at the right hand of the Father. And he is always there, ever living, ever perfect, ever pure, presenting his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And so the author says he is able to save completely to the uttermost those who come through him because he's the one that's there even now making intercession for us always. The author said there in chapter 7 that Jesus has no need to present a sacrifice for himself. He's sinless. He's unstained. And he offered his sacrifice once for all. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at verse 3 with me. And, and notice this language. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God 
the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now the author goes on later to unpack this a little bit. He says, the priests of the old covenant stood in their position daily. And then they died, and they had to be replaced. And they were sinners, so they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before offering sacrifices for anyone else. And then they died, and they had to be replaced, and then the same cycle kept on going. And so the author keeps using this word for those priests in the old covenant as they had to stand, and they stood, and they did their job continually. But notice there in verse 3 what the son does after he offers his self once for all. What does he do? He makes purification for sins and he sits down because the job is done. Jesus does not stand regularly to make further atonement. The atonement has been made. His job is done. It is finished. What he stands there now doing at the right hand of the Father is pleading his finished work on our behalf. It's not a continuation of the atonement, but it's this perpetual reminder of the atonement in the presence of God that these people belong to me because of these wounds and because of my blood. They are mine. I'm praying for them. I'm interceding for them. They belong to me because of the once for all finished work of the cross. Go back to Hebrews chapter 4, and let's look at one more thing here before we move on. Hebrews chapter 4, notice that language he used in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest, look at this phrase, who has passed through the heavens. Now, if you're just reading that at face value, and you're thinking about the ascension, then that's the only picture that kind of comes to mind. Well, he ascended to heaven. He passed through the heavens. But that word and that phrase, passed through, along with this imagery of the priesthood, is reminding us also of something else. And that is pointing us to the veil in the temple. As the high priest, only the high priest, and even then, only once a year, would pass through the veil of the temple from the holy place into the most holy place, or the holy of holies, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Having made an atonement for himself first, or he couldn't go in without dying, <laughs> he goes into the holy of holies with the blood of the lamb, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat, making atonement for the rest of the people. And this is the picture that the author gives us of Jesus. That what was going on in the tabernacle and what was going on later in the temple was pointing us to somewhere else. That the tabernacle wasn't the end. The temple wasn't the end, as glorious as it was. It was a fuller, bigger, real picture that was yet to come. And that is Jesus, our high priest, stepping into the real holy of holies, not in a tent in the wilderness, and not even in the beautiful, glorious temple on Mount Zion, but into the actual holy of holies that those were just pictures of, the actual, real presence 
of God. Um, go over to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at one verse with me. Hebrews chapter 10. Actually, let's start in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you see that? We have confidence to enter into the holy places through the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the veil. What veil? That is through his flesh. And the picture the author is painting for us is that this, this new and living way that Jesus opens for us, again, is not a room in a tent in the wilderness or a room in the temple on Mount Zion, but is the very presence of God. And the way that we enter through into the presence of God is through a veil. It is through a curtain of sorts, but it's not a physical curtain, as was in the tabernacle and the temple. It is through the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he died on the cross and the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom, that was a sign of what was going on on the cross. That now this way is opened through the torn flesh of Jesus, through his blood, to come into the very presence of God as if we belonged there. Jesus, as we remember from 725, Jesus is forever, and he's there forever. High priest goes in, he comes out. Once a year, little few minutes sprinkling the blood and he's out if you were the high priest you want to get out real quick too but Jesus goes in and he lives forever not only that but he is there in the presence of God in the real holy of holies forever Jesus is always living he's passed through once he remains there for us forever so all this is, is great. It's a good thing that Jesus has departed. He sent us the Holy Spirit. It, the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. We get that. Jesus has gone there. He's interceding for us. He's our high priest. He's presenting himself on our behalf. He brings us into the holy places with him. What does it mean for us in our worship? Like why, why consider this at all? Well, because it gives us confidence in the gospel. It gives us confidence in the gospel. If Jesus is there, if Jesus is there as our mediator, if Jesus is there as our representative, and what the author says in Hebrews 4, 14, becomes actually doable. Because he has passed through the heavens, verse 14 of chapter 4 says, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus is there for us, therefore, Hold fast or hold on to your confession. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that in Hebrews 11. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ who's run the race. He's gone on before us. Keep your eyes there on the prize. There is your salvation. Where so, we're we, we so often tempted to look for salvation? We're, we're so often, I think, no matter what your answer is, this thing, that thing, uh, this work, uh, a feeling, an emotion, a uh, thought, a deed, whatever it is, it kind of all just stems back to looking at ourselves. I told, I think it was the new members class on Sunday that um, 
When I was nine or ten, I began to doubt my salvation. And part of that was that I couldn't remember uh, the actual events of what happened when I was four. And I, rem- I remember the Bible school lesson, and I remember the, the, the prayer that I said, and I remember telling my parents, and we kind of reiterated that prayer at home. And I remember all that stuff, but it bothered me that I couldn't remember the details. I couldn't remember what I exactly said. Did I say the right thing? Did I get the formula right? And my pastors at that time were doing their best to help me in these, these questions from, you know, a 10-year-old. And um, with all good motives and good intentions, they, they just kept pointing me back to myself. Uh, do you remember the thing you said? Do you remember your mother leading you? Do you remember the Bible school teacher? Do you remember that you did this and you said that? Said that? And did you mean it? You know, were you sincere? And um, my answer was, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember I did the thing. I said the prayer. I, d- I checked all the boxes and all that stuff. But I still doubt it. I doubted for a very long time after that until I started to realize uh, what they were doing with good motives, good intentions, trying to assure me of my salvation. They were pointing me to me. When all the time they should have been pointing me to Jesus. They should have been saying, what did Jesus do? Do you trust that? You know, regardless of how many times you've said the sinner's prayer, I think it was J.D. Greer who wrote the book, uh, Quit Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, Uh, That resonated with me because that's what I thought I had to do all the time. I sinned or I messed up and, oh, Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I guess some sort of incantation you say to get saved. And how often do we look at that thing and that experience and that prayer or whatever it is that happened and we, we base our hope and our assurance off of that thing that we did rather than on what Christ has done. And the ascension, the whole point is look to Jesus. He has gone to the heavens. He's gone into the Holy of Holies. He's there for you. And the author of Hebrews says, because he's there, that's why, verse 14, you can hold fast to your confession. You should look to Jesus, not yourself. Because at the end of the day, when all the questions are done, when we stand before him in judgment, our only confidence is in him. Your emotions as a Christian are going to rise and fall like a roller coaster. You will feel saved some days. You'll feel anything but saved some days. And some days it'll go back and forth by the hour, right? And you'll have assurance one minute and no assurance the next minute. And you'll mess up or you'll, you'll yell at someone or you'll lose your temper or you'll sin or really mess up for a long period of time and wonder, am I still saved? Did this, does it still count all the while keep looking to yourself and you're looking at your emotions and your feelings and your thoughts and your behavior and your merits instead of turning your eyes and your focus to Jesus who has achieved perfect salvation for you. Author of Hebrews tells us to look to him. He's gone there and he is there forever for us. Therefore, we can have confidence and hold fast our confession. Let's say it this way. Jesus came as God's representative to reveal God to us. Okay, John 1.18, after the word became flesh, he dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, he's revealed him. Jesus came 
to reveal God to us as God's representative. Jesus goes in the ascension as our representative to plead for us to God. He comes to reveal God to us. He goes to plead for us to God. Last point tonight. It is already done. One of these days, I'll play the clip for you when I feel. Uh, there's a little song that goes with that. For you, you don't care. Turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at, I always tell you a number and I'm wrong. We have two more passages to look at. How about that? Colossians chapter 3. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Notice the language, the with and in and by and all that stuff. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, will appear, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You notice what Paul says there at the very beginning? Since you have been raised with Christ. I heard someone this week, and I watched so many preacher clips and things during the week that it's hard for me to remember who said what, but it, this resonated with this point. We spend so much time in Christianity talking about um, God in us and Jesus in us, and there's truth to that, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory, I understand that. Salvation is not so much about Jesus being in you or living in your heart or whatever language you want to use as it is, according to Paul, as it is us being in him, our union with him by faith. And that's so important because it's not we who did these things to merit salvation. It's Jesus who lived a sinless life. It's Jesus who died for us. It's Jesus who was buried. Jesus who rose. Jesus who ascended. And so it's not the need for Jesus to be tied to us somehow. The need is for us to be united to him and his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That's what we need to be in. And that's exactly the language Paul uses all the time. And notice how he uses it there in verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ... So that when Jesus rose from the dead through faith, it's as if you rose from the dead with him. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, it's as if you ascended with him. And that's what Paul says. Set your minds up there on the things that are above. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God where he is at the Father's right hand. It's as if you are already there with him. Paul says here, our hope is outside of us. I'll talk about this on Sunday, uh, Reformation Sunday. That was one of the big driving factors of the Reformation. That our hope of salvation is not in us or something we do or something we achieve. It is outside of us, namely in Christ and his righteousness. Paul says here, our hope is in him because we are in him. Paul says, you've died with him, you've been raised with him, you have ascended with him, and your real life 
is there with him at the right hand of the Father right now. And if that's where you are in him, then that's where your hope is. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is the last one, I promise. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. And so we'll see the whole thought process here. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Follow the, follow the, the course here from our, our first characteristics here to where we wind up. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So notice those key words. If you missed it, dead, trespasses and sins, the flesh, the prince, the power of the air, the desires of the body, and we were children, verse 3, of wrath. But look at what happens next, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, watch this the language again, together, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6 is even better. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know this part. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see what Paul says in verse 6? We've been raised with Christ. Furthermore, we have been seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. That's what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, when he says, those whom he called, or those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And later, those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul is always using this language as if it were already done. It was accomplished. That when Christ died, you died with him through faith. When he was buried, you were buried with him through faith. When he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead with him through faith. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, you ascended with him, and you were seated with him right there, right now, by faith. And it is that union with him in his story, as if it were already done, and he is now there at the right hand of the Father, and you are too, that's what gives us the confidence in our salvation, because it is already done. It is already accomplished. There's nothing left to wait for except the fulfillment of that which is already ours. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter. You have this hope that's unfading, undefiled. It's kept there in heaven for you. And he goes on to say, and later it will be revealed to you. It's already yours. It's already there. You're there. Your life is there. Your hope is there. One day it will be revealed. Salvation that we have in Christ is not something that you have done, but it's something that Christ has done for you. And because we are united to him by faith, his story becomes our story. 
and we can know security and assurance of our salvation, not because we remembered the words we said or the things that we did, but because our faith is in him, the perfect, spotless Savior. And because we know that he is there right now as the perfect, spotless, sinless Savior, pleading on our behalf. If you know the song we sing sometimes before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. It goes on to say, I see him there, the risen lamb, the per- my perfect spotless righteousness. I see him there, spotless lamb, the great I am who guarantees my salvation as my high priest because he's ever living to plead for me. The reality of our hope as Christians is really pictured perfectly in the ascension of Christ. Yes, his death, his resurrection, but also in his ascension. Because in the ascension of Jesus, we see his ongoing work as our perfect high priest there in the very glory of God. And the picture above all the pictures is that he is there and we are there in him. If you can remember back when we talked about the incarnation, what, five, six weeks ago, I don't remember when it was, the incarnation, the doctrine that God took on flesh, incarnate, in flesh, the Son of God who was eternal, remember, preexistent with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son becomes a man, takes on flesh in what we call the incarnation, to become a man, to reside with us as a man, And remember that once he became man, he now and forever will be man. When Jesus came, he did not give up his divinity. When Jesus came, he was still fully God, though now he had taken on flesh as a human. So that when he ascends, he does not cease to be human. But now he is forever the God-man. And I said this back when we talked about the incarnation, but it bears repeating here uh, as we talk about the ascension. That that, although that's really heady theological talk, I know that God became man and, and now he's man forever. Here's why it matters. And as Alistair Begg said in his, one of his sermons on the ascension, it matters because when we cross over into heaven, it will be a human hand that greets us. I'm going to say that quote probably a million more times as your pastor because it's one of my favorites. That's why the ascension matters. That when we cross over into heaven, it will be a human hand, the human hand of Jesus that greets us. One of the old hymns of the church, one of those Advent hymns that we don't sing very much, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending, one of the verses says, And at last our eyes will see him. Not just some spiritual floaty Jesus up there somewhere, not just a bright cloud or something, but we'll see Jesus, the God-man, the one who ascended. I don't know how this works, and and, and I'm not going to try to figure it out geographically or astronomically, whatever the words I need are. But Jesus... In his glorified physical body, 
raised from the dead as a real human being, right? Not just a spirit creature, a real human being. Ascended into heaven, not as a spirit creature, but a real human being. And again, I don't know all the details of this, and I cannot map it out for you. So let's just kind of revel in the mystery together. Somewhere in real time and real space is the physical body and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whatever that means for heaven, and whatever that means for what heaven is and where heaven is and all that stuff, I can't tell you. It's fun to talk about and debate and discuss, but I don't think we can come to a final answer. But it bears, it bears worth repeating that, that Jesus is somewhere right now in a glorified physical body. He didn't just evaporate into spirit world, right? He ascended with his resurrected glorified body, the same kind of body that you and I will have in our resurrection. And he went somewhere. Isn't that fantastic? Y'all are looking at me like I'm a crazy person. I don't know what it means, and I can't answer all the questions. But Jesus is somewhere right now for you and for me. What assurance and confidence and hope we have. He has passed through the heavens. And because he has passed through the heavens, we can rest assured that we will one day too pass through the heavens. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this truth of the ascension of Jesus. We thank you that in your mercy and your kindness, you've given us this, this beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ ascending physically to sit at your right hand. Again, Father, we don't know the mysteries and the questions here. It would be impossible for us to try to dissect all the details and all the things that this means for us. And what we do know and what we rejoice in today is that Jesus is there right now pleading and interceding for us. And because he is there right now interceding for us every single moment, we can rest assured that there is not a single moment that passes that we do not belong to you. So we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Today we thank you for the ascension of Christ and that ongoing work of intercession and prayer for us poor sinners. God, direct our focus to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Set our minds on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at your right hand. Take our eyes off of our circumstances, off of our suffering, off of our self-righteousness, our own works and our own merit. And help us then to live as living sacrifices for him, for you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our union with Jesus by faith. And thank you for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to, by him and with him, be on mission for you in this world. For the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus, we ask all these things in his name. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604.
see you next time.